We are reading from Matthew chapter 10, verse 1 through 15. Can you, everyone hear me okay? Okay. <laughs> um, he called his 12 disciples to him and gave, him, gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. Freely you have received. Freely give. Do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for the journey, or extra tunic, or sandals, or staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, Shake the dust off your feet when you leave that town, that home or town. I tell you the truth. It will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. This is the word of God. Thank you, Megan. Well, we're continuing this week. Um through a summer series that we're calling Follow Me. Um, here's, what we're, here's what we're doing. We are becoming disciples. As Christians, baptized in faith, professing that we have repented and we believe, we are disciples of Jesus. Not unlike these 12 very ordinary disciples that Jesus drew out. And so this summer, um, we're going, each, each sermon's going to build a little bit. So it, it will be important if you miss a week to try and tune in or catch up with somebody. They're going to build, and we're going to get more and more practical. We're going to live these out, and there's going to be some, some structure around this. We're going to bring things to cohorts. We're going to work through this stuff. We are going to be formed into disciples this summer, perhaps more than we have before. Perhaps we're going to be flexing some new muscles. Um, we're going to have some aches and pains. Uh, but I think it's going to be really, really good. So the first, I want to just walk through the first two weeks what we've talked about. The first week, we talked about the true vine. We said that we must have a sense of God's totality, that God is with us everywhere, that we abide in him. We are of, of the vine. We are the branches. We are under the great gardener. Last week, that we, in order to be disciples of Jesus, must have a keen sense of God's authority, his kingship. Some of us tend to lean towards what a friend I have in Jesus, deny his kingship. 
Some of us tend to lean towards his kingship and deny our friendship. But he is both. Especially, this is important, when we get opposite messaging from the world. When we are getting a great commission from the king, but meanwhile the world is commissioning chaotically, rampantly, scheming for Jesus' discrediting and demise to the point that they crucified him on the cross and then sought to lie about his resurrection. Thirdly, this week, we need to begin to have some sense, once those two things are beginning to get locked in, of what is the practicality, because the devil will use loftiness to distract us from action. He will use great big ideas to disconnect us from reality and to diffuse us into the world of the academic or the, quote, spiritual, so that our hands then become tied. So we're so confused, we're working it all out in our heads and we lock ourselves away. So today we have a Jesus who is giving his disciples very practical instructions. How do you disciple? So, first, let's, we're going to ask two big questions. Why does Jesus call us to make disciples? What does discipling Jesus look like in action? So, first, why does Jesus call us to make disciples? Well, you might say, John, I thought we already answered that. He gave us the Great Commission. Sure, he did, but actually he just said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, right? He, he didn't actually say the why in that great commission. Sure, it's why enough, because he's the king and he has authority, but I think for all of us, we can understand it's one thing for our parents to say, do this because I said so, and it's a whole different thing for them to let us in, in grace and mercy, into the reasoning behind their good judgment. That's exactly what Jesus does here. So, in order to really comprehend this text, if you open your Bibles to Matthew 10 and look at this with me, skip back to chapter 9 and read the last few verses of chapter 9. If we start on verse 33, he says this. He says, Matthew writes, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease, and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers for the harvest. You see, Matthew would have understood us to be people that read this Bible like any other novel. We're going to have read chapter 9 to catch up to chapter 10. So as a preacher, I have to do some justice and expand our scope for a second and say, we would know this if we were reading it. We would know that there is a why to becoming a disciple, that there's a reason. And as we read our Bibles, I just want to take a minute for those of you who are reading, for those of you who are studying, as you're grappling, I tackled this text and I said, yeah, I, I think I get it, but I have some questions. And so what I did is I, I just zoomed out a little bit. I'm going to read the chapters around it. I'm going to get some context. I'm going to read this like I would read any other book. And sure enough, there it is. Why do we disciple? Why are we called to make disciples? Because the world is full of the harassed and helpless that are like sheep without a shepherd. 
It's interesting, Matthew writes this intentionally alliterating. In the Greek, it's, it's two words that start with E, eskimenoi, eskimenoi, and eromenoi. It's harassed and helpless. Just like in my translation in the ESV, it says harassed and helpless. See, there's an alliteration. We're supposed to remember these things. We're supposed to have sort of a, a recall, a memorization that says, yes, the world is harassed and helpless. They are sheep without a shepherd. And that begins us on the right footing to make a disciple. Because if we don't begin on that footing, then it's very easy for us to read this passage and go, yeah, no problem, shake the, shake the dust off my feet, walk away, no problem. They're lost and whatever. I'm better than them. The world's off its rocker, but I'm saved and I'm good, so I'm just going to keep on going. Jesus says it's not that at all. He says the underlying aspect of all of this, the motivating factor on why we make disciples is one of compassion. Jesus had compassion for the harassed and helpless. He saw them as people that were lost. Originally, there was a plan, and they had lost the plan. And although they didn't realize it and still don't realize it, if you think about the people that you know that don't know Christ... They may not say, I'm harassed and helpless. But they have become their own shepherd. And Jesus says, because of that, they are in the devil's hands. They are harassed and helpless. What Jesus is really saying here is the world needs a pastor. Because that's what that word shepherd means. The world needs a pastor. And that pastor is the perfect man. The only man that can be the true pastor, and that's Jesus. They need Jesus. So why make disciples? To reclaim and redeem and bring back, rescue, the harassed and helpless. To who? To Jesus. Not to yourself. Not to your ideologies. But to Jesus' way. And then he says this. He says, this is urgent. Right? He says, he says, the harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. There's, an, there's a need. There's an immediate need. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out the laborers into our harvest. I don't know about you, but I grew up in, I grew up in Walla Walla, southeast Washington. It's farm country. Man, when the harvest is on, you better get out there. Right? People are rushing out and pulling 12, 15-hour days, getting everything cut down, everything brought in. When the harvest is on, you must get out in the fields. So Jesus is making a very clear, painting a clear picture here of what it is discipling is. Discipling is not a later thing. Disciple is not a thing we can delay. And it's also a thing that doesn't need us. He says the harvest is abundant and the laborers are few. Get out there. Uh, my kids and I were on a walk, and we saw a sign, right? And the sign was a, it said, Brody's Lawn Mowing Business. And it was all written in, like, hand, kids' handwriting. And, and then it had, like, little numbers you could pull off the bottom. And it had his rates, and it had everything. And we geeked out on that so hard because we said, there is a need. Brody, Brody, there's something wrong. Brody's, all of his numbers are here. None of them have been picked off, right? But people need their lawn mowed. What's going on? Brody wants to work out there. He knows there's a need for the harvest, but something's missing in this. And so we started thinking about how do you run a business and how do you set things up? And how do you tackle the first thing that Brody did tackle, 
which was people need their lawns mowed. And, I, and my kids started coming up with their own business plans. And I came home and they said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hang a sign, Dad. I wanna make a business that I can make money with and people can take my number and call me. And I said, great, the first thing that you need to do is you need to get a sense for what people need, right? They, they had all sorts of fun ideas of what they want, but they needed to have a sense of what people actually need. And Jesus says, don't for a second kid yourself. There is a need for this. There is a need for this discipleship. I think some of us have so downplayed that need, relegating it to somebody else, that we've dismissed it. So then we have, then we have one more question that we have to, you know, we have to ask something that, that to me was really curious. Okay, if Jesus is the king of the universe, and if the sheep are truly lost, why ask 12 out of his, you know, throngs of disciples, he brings these 12 out. Why ask these 12 guys to do the work? Why not just snap his fingers and reclaim everybody back to him? I mean, why? With an all-powerful God, it must be, it must be that with the need, that there's some component, some character of God in his compassion in his desire for redemption for his people, that he has chosen us as people that are to come and work with him, that that is part of the plan. It doesn't work unless we come and pray to his ends. We say, thy will be done, and we pray. And then we consider the fact for a moment, something pretty startling perhaps, that when you pray a prayer, God may ask you to help fulfill it. That as we pray, God, may your will be done. May you reclaim, may the sheep that are lost be brought back in to the field. That he may say, that's why I have you. That we are making ourselves vulnerable when we ask this question, why disciple? And Jesus is pointing his hand and he's saying, we disciple because I've brought you into this with me. So that's where we start. We start with the, the sense that there is a compassionate sense. To, there's a reason for discipleship. There is a need. There is a compassionate God who wants to bring about his redemption, but he will not do it alone. He asks us to do it with him. He will redeem his people through his people. And that puts the church squarely at the center. What he has given to us as a church is sufficient. His plan and ways and power are sufficient. The timeline, the means, all of it is what he has chosen to accomplish redemption and justice. All right. So, I'm gonna, I have one more reason. I'm going to be very brief on it. Why does, does he call us? John, does he actually call me? You could read this and you could say, well, his apostles had a special mission. He's giving them a special mission to Israel. John, how can you interpret that Matthew 10 applies to me? And I think that one's fairly straightforward because of Matthew 28, because of the Great Commission, which says, go and make disciples of all nations. He's pushing them out as his last wish to do it everywhere. So, 
What does discipling to Jesus look like in action? I want to walk through four sort of images, sort of visions of identities that the disciples take as they begin to disciple. So when you ask the question, okay, I get that John really wants me to disciple. I get that Jesus apparently really wants me to disciple. I I feel like in my head I am or I want to. Okay, I want you to challenge yourself by asking you these four questions. Are you a student of Jesus? First question, are you a student of Jesus? Are you traveling out from and back to Jesus? Are you a herald? We'll talk a little bit more about that. Are you a herald of Jesus and are you a healer? So first, are you a student? So, the word disciple most closely resembles the word for learner. So to be a disciple meant these were people who were learning the way of Jesus. They were there to be with him, to learn him. There's three texts in the Synoptic Gospels that mirror this. This is a very well-known and rewritten story. Matthew 10, Mark 6, Luke 9, all have the same basic ingredients of this story. And in them, there's one thing that's common. Jesus has called the disciples together as ordinary people, underwrites everything, and he has made them extraordinary by the fact of his will alone. And it's just, it's caught up in this statement. He called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority. He gave them a special authority over unclean spirits to cast them out to heal every disease and every affliction. So the student of Jesus is getting a certain kind of authority. So it's not their own skills necessarily or their own smarts or their own looks or their own genes. It is their devotion as learners that presents them to Jesus as those worthy And then it is him giving his authority to them. So it's crucial that before we think about getting out there, that we think about what it means to be a learner. That these people were people that had come around Jesus from all different walks of life because they were attracted in some way to his teaching. These were people that probably had gathered around him as he was teaching well before he actually called them out as his twelve. And they were curious. They wanted to know more. They were kind of in the back rows, moving towards the middle rows. Now they're sitting in the front rows. Jesus is eyeing them. He says, I want you. I want you. I want you. I don't care what you've done before. I don't care that you're all different. I don't even care that you might all hate each other. You're all with me now. Because if you can all agree to one thing, it's that you can put the rest of that aside because you all decided to sit in the front row. So I picked you out. He calls them to task on it. And to their credit... They don't waver. And he says to them, he says this. He says, this is not a class audit, right? If you take a class, I was just looking at seminary classes, like kind of fancifully thinking if I could possibly sign up for one. And I was thinking about it and I go, well, what's, I could audit this class, right? What's an audit? An audit's where you pay a lot less. They don't grade your papers. You don't have to do everything. You just kind of sit and listen. Discipleship is not an audit. Discipleship in this case looks a lot more like what? An internship. So the disciples were becoming interns where Jesus had said, I think you've got the stuff that it takes. Come on, let's intern. And you're going to learn on the job. 
And so we see that we have these 12 disciples who have a changed heart. And then through the process of interning with Jesus, they change their habits radically. I'm going to repeat that because we're going to, this is one of the things we're going to work on in our cohorts. They have changed hearts. And then they begin to change their habits. And in that process, they begin to mirror the image of Jesus and carry out the will of Jesus. How did they do this? Well, the first thing is at the end of chapter 9, he says, pray that there would be workers to bring in the harvest, laborers to bring in the harvest. So the first thing that these students are is they're prayerful. Implicitly, we can imagine that after he gave that instruction, as people were trying to learn him, they went and they prayed. I mean, why wouldn't they? Go and pray to bring in that harvest. And then not one verse after that, he says, okay, I'm calling you. I'm giving you authority. You just said the prayer. Come on. I mean, it could have been a shocker to them, but how are they going to get out of that one? Right? I just prayed to the almighty God, the king of the universe, that he would bring laborers to the harvest. And now God himself has picked me by pulling me out of the crowd. So a student is prayerful. Second, a student is committed. When they chose him, when, when he chose them, they went and did it. He sends them. And not just them, he actually sends a lot more. So this is not just something to find the, the, the apostles, the 12. In Luke 10, in this similar story, he sends out 12, and then he feeds the 5,000. Huge crowd, right? Fills a massive amphitheater. And then he goes and sends out 72. So there is a multiplication factor happening here. There is a sense in which Jesus is always looking to expand, not for his sort of own ego, right? But because it, to make glory out of him, to make goodness and greatness out of him, is to have the most compassion and love for all humanity. Numbers more is better in the case of discipleship. And we see that all of those people he sends out are committed to him. But it's interesting. Not all of them stay committed. Not everybody that becomes a disciple of Jesus stays a disciple of Jesus. Of course, we know about Judas. But we could actually look at a whole group of other disciples. If we look at John 6, verse 60. Jesus has just said, I am the bread of life. And he's, if you read this discourse, it's kind of a strange discourse if you just pull it out. He says, if you eat my body, right? It sounds like very odd language. If you eat my body, then these falling things will happen, right? And he's talking about how I am the bread of life. And his disciples hear this and they start to realize this guy's really serious. This is a command that is authoritative and it calls for all of me. I'm starting to get scared. Because to be a disciple of Jesus doesn't mean I get to audit the class and leave and go think about whether I want to do it or not. By sitting and listening under his teaching, he is drawing me in towards him as if I'm joining an internship. And so they say, I need to get out. His disciples, when they heard this, this is his whole group of disciples, not just the 12. They said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. 
But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning that there were those who do not believe and who, and who it was who would betray him. It's interesting. It doesn't say Judas there. I think it's actually a, a wider net. He's saying there's a whole crowd of people here that are going to turn away. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless granted to him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Verse 66. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. See, in this way, it's not quite like an internship. It's a complete new life. Jesus says you have to be born again. You walk out of this church, you decide to turn away from this faith, you will not feel at home in the world anymore. You will feel lost from everything. Because Jesus is your true home. That's why he calls them lost sheep. So, his disciples, his 12 that he asked to go make disciples, are committed, those who stick with him. Now, it doesn't mean they're perfect in every way. It doesn't mean they don't make mistakes. It means that when they do, they, they turn and come back. That's the heart of a disciple. So, now let's look, let's look through the more sort of action-oriented, the outward-oriented aspects. Are you a traveler that is heading out from and back to Jesus? Let's look at Matthew 10. Verse 6, he says, but rather go to the lost sheep and to the house of Israel. This is part of his instructions. Go to the lost sheep and the house of Israel. Well, we talked about that sense of going to the lost sheep. So we know a traveler is compassionate, but we also know that a traveler is going. They're searching. So as a disciple, as somebody who's learning to disciple, we are going to be people who are always searching. But not just that, we are going to be traveling out from and back to. I made that a very clear distinction because I think it helps give us a really good image of what it means to disciple. That we are beginning in our journey of discipleship, not just in the grand scheme, but in the most minute scheme, to a daily, to an hourly, perhaps to a minute, perhaps to a moment. If I were able to spiritually diagnose where our brain is going, we are looping like this. We're going back to Jesus. We're bringing everything back to him. We're jumping out into the world from that and we're circling back. He's anchoring us. He's pulling us. There's a gravitational pull to a good disciple that we can't help but do that once we have trained ourselves to look to Jesus as the truth and as the authority in our life because why wouldn't we come back to him with confusion and doubt and lay it at his feet? Why wouldn't we come back to him with a friendship that's gone off the rails and lay at its feet? Why would we not come back to him with a habit that seemed destructive and lay it at his feet? So to disciple is to go out and back in this continuous loop. This is kind of what it's like for those of you who are seamstresses or sew-it-all. To disciple is to begin to ask Jesus where to pin down the garment. You're pinning it down. And you're constantly looking at all those pins. That's your heart. That's your attitude. You're saying, I'm going to start laying the pins. And then I'm going to begin to sew it with my habits. I'm going to begin to work it out with my habits. And it is a daily process of beginning to pin and ask and then beginning to sew along with the hand of the Holy Spirit. 
It is a moving from the presence out toward. William Barclay writes this. He says, no work of Christ can ever be done except by men and women who come from the presence of Christ. Sometimes in the complexity of the activities of the modern church, we are so busy with committees and courts and administration and making the wheels go round with child care, with snack tables, with driving places, with all of the things we do in this church that make it happen. They're all good things. He's not saying they're bad things. He says we're so busy with the realities and the work and the chores and the duties that we are in danger of forgetting that none of these things matters if it is carried on by people who have not been with Christ before they have been with others. That's convicting. He says, he continues on and he says, if, if this student image is feeling a little cold for you, say, so John, I, I get what you're going at, but being a student of Jesus, eh, it doesn't really do it for me. I don't like it. Listen to this. He says, we have the beginnings here of the king's commission to his messengers. The word which is used in the Greek for Jesus commanding the twelve or giving them orders is an interesting and illuminating word. It's the word perigelion. This word in Greek has four special uses. I'm just going to give you three of them. We've already talked about the king's command last week. It says, he says, it's a military term. Jesus was like a great general sending out his commanders out on a campaign and briefing them before he went. It's a term which is used for imperial command. Jesus was like a king dispatching his ambassadors into the world to carry out his orders. It is the word used of calling one's friend to one's help. Jesus was like a man with a great ideal, summoning his friends to make that ideal come true. So, why then, in this case, are they just sent out to Israel. If we continue on in the text, it says, he, sh- he said, go nowhere among the Gentiles and, and no town of the Samaritans. Well, we know Jesus was with a Samaritan woman at a well. We know he told the story of the good Samaritan. We know that this seems counter to Jesus' whole way of thinking and his whole compassion for redeeming us. Why does he send them out to Israel? It might, it might seem to you like a detail, like why is John thread drifting down this detail? It's, it's crucial and here's why. First of all, yes, it was prophetic. God did say, I will redeem Israel first. So there's a prophetic nature to it. In Revelation, we see God bringing Israel separate from everybody else. He brings Israel as a particular nation. So there is a biblical theological reason for it. There's also just a practical way of looking at the text. One more time, Barclay here, he says, the 12 were not equipped to preach to the Gentiles. These are a bunch of Jewish guys. He says, they had neither the background nor the knowledge nor the technique. Before the gospel could be effectively brought to the Gentiles, he writes, a man with Paul's life and background had to emerge. A message has little chance of success if the messenger is ill-equipped to deliver it. If preachers and teachers are wise, they will be aware of their own limitations and will see clearly what they are and are not fitted to do. I thought that was interesting. But he says, but the great reason for this command is this. Wise commanders know they must limit their objectives. See, I think it's too common for us to frequently get overwhelmed with this idea of discipleship. And it becomes this grand scheme. And what did I say about that at the beginning? It then begins to diffuse out into the ether. Of course, yeah, of course I'm called to be a disciple. I get it. I know I'm supposed to make people Jesus followers. And we cannot connect it. It's too grand to be able to connect it to our actual today. 
But if what we've heard is true, then we are asked literally when we walk out of this church building to be discipling with our life. And so Jesus, as a wise commander, limits their objective. And he says, I want you, there's just 12 of you, I want you to go and do this specific thing. And in his case, it was a temporary specific command. He was giving them very clear directions for reaching Israel itself. So there's an immediacy to it. The focus shows us that a traveler is undelayed, as I mentioned. A traveler is searching, but they're searching specifically in their own life with their own testimony, with their own stuff. I think I've mentioned this before, but like we are most committed to being disciples. We are most effective at being disciples for Jesus to people that we can listen to and understand and people when they hear us can understand Jesus. And the way that we're going to do that is by finding people that walk in our worlds. Finding people that we connect with. And at least beginning there. I'm not saying that we can never disciple to somebody totally unlike us. Jesus may intentionally put you there. But I think Jesus is saying, start, just keep it simpler to start with. Are there, are there, are there moms that have gone through what you as a mom have gone through? Are there students that have gone through what you as a student have gone through? Are there people that are retired that have gone through that? Are there people that are blind, like Ron, who have gone through blindness, that understand that? How do you speak Jesus to that person as somebody who's lived through that and start there in your discipleship journey? As a Jew, go to Israel. As a Jew that believes in Jesus, 12 disciples go to the house of Israel. Simplify it. Don't make this so complicated. And then he says this, he says, you are to proclaim, verse 7, proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or some, some translations say is near. So we are to be heralds. Well, what is a herald? A herald was a sort of a common, in this, in this time, the word proclaim was like a, a military campaign kingdom word. And it would, have, it would have been to act as a proxy on the behalf of the king, right? Like a town crier who, if you think about it, it's hard for us to imagine this in a time without email, in a time without the post office, in a time without telephones. You actually have to send a runner, a messenger, with the message of the king to another town. And it is his job to act as if he is the king. The message of the king, the character of the king, the authority of the king. You would not expect that proxy, that, that, that placeholder, that image bearer of the king to behave totally differently than the king. That would reflect the kingdom in really weird ways. Right? If, that, if that herald is off duty and he's at the town bar and he's acting dishonest, he's, he's flirting around, he's denying that he, that he even cares about the king, he's so drunk he can't even talk about it, right? he would not be reflecting the character of that king. He wouldn't be reflecting the culture and the code of the one he comes from and the message that he carries. So it's a challenge for us as those who disciple with our whole lives, with what we have given. Isn't it a temptation to think, well, sometimes there's times when I deserve to be off duty. It doesn't appear to be the case, does it? 
It appears as if, if we are to proclaim that the kingdom is near, we are to be heralds, we are to be proxies. We are to be like the original Adam who reflected God in every way in human form and not like Adam after the fall. It's a tall order. Of course, we will fail at it. Of course, we will not be perfect at it. But he says this is an ideal of what it means to make disciples. To follow me means that you will be a herald, that you will be an image bearer. He says this, Matthew 12, 34. He says, your words come from your heart. So if you're an image bearer, if you're a herald, you have to start with your heart. You can't simply dismiss those heart things. The reason we're going to work on these attitudes and habits of discipleship. You cannot effectively go disciple if your heart is twisted and bitter and resentful of those you're going to reach. If your heart is fearful and scared. If your heart is judgmental and condemning and arrogant. Matthew 12, 34, he calls the Pharisees and says, You brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That is a convicting statement. So some of us are worried about, I, I just can't seem to articulate Jesus. And I would say, I, I get that. That is a real problem. But actually, the problem here is not about the crossing your T's and dotting your I's and getting everything perfect. The problem is, if your heart is in the right place, will you be able to help from articulating Jesus in every aspect of your life and what you do because your heart is for him and you have compassion for those who are lost because you see the ways that Jesus has redeemed you. Uh, sorry, I got two kids stories today. Just this one was too perfect. So we went and looked, our cat got lost, was lost overnight, got stuck in a tree it turns out. And so we're walking down and retracing our walk to find this cat. And my kids are awesome. And they are just screaming out the cat's name. They're going, Bella, Bella. The whole way, walk, like the whole entire walk, there's never a moment where Bella's name isn't called out on the walk. And meanwhile, I'm here going like every once in a while, Bella. But then I'm mostly just like hanging out while my kids do it. Because it's a little embarrassing as a grown man to scream at the top of your lungs for your cat. All the way down your neighborhood where everybody knows you. But what I have found, Bella, if I was screaming every three blocks for her, or would I have found her if I'm, if I'm yelling it constantly? Because what happened is we came around the block and we turned the corner, and because they were yelling every moment, she heard them and started crying back from up in that tree, and we heard her, and we were able to get her. It was a constancy. It was a searching out of love because they wanted her back that got her. That that love for having her back was more powerful than the embarrassment of how they would look. And of course, as heralds and image bearers, we're not just loving other people for our own sake, but we're loving people to Jesus. So this is not a vague, general, philosophical love. I saw on a sign down the road, it had a list of sort of like manifesto statements, and one of them just said, love is love. And I was like, okay. But like all you're doing is reinforcing whatever I think love is, now I just feel like it's that more. Like for us, sometimes our feeling is, okay, to go and love people, we've already decided what that means. 
But if we're traveling to and from Jesus as travelers, and if we're heralding him, then every relationship, Christian or non-Christian, we are going to have a deep internal desire and wish and prayer for that friendship to head towards Jesus. All the time. We are always going to know that that friendship will be better if that person knows Jesus. There's just no question about it. It's not a doubt. Lastly, the kingdom of heaven, we will herald that it has come near. Now, this is probably the hardest for many of us. Because the kingdom coming near suggests that there is a timeline, an urgency, and that we are running out of time. And some of us who grew up in this faith have gotten frustrated, I think, speaking as one who grew up with a lot of end times talk, that it made seem God seem wrathful and vindictive. But if the king is truly the king, and if the king truly wins, and we know he will win, and if no evil will be in the kingdom, then what happens to evil? That's the question. And so he says this, the kingdom is near. Not the Roman kingdom, not the Jewish nation. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he, he sort of paints a picture of an invading horde, right? If you as a herald are coming to a town and you say a message from the king, in two days, everybody here will be overrun by a force much more powerful than you. But I have great news. If right now you profess to be part of that kingdom, nothing will happen to you. That it is the best thing. You are wayward and the best thing for you is to be restored to the kingdom. That is what Jesus says must happen. But I can hear us thinking right now, John, I would never, ever do that. I would never, ever do that. That seems so mean and evil and power hungry. I would be lording myself over them. And you're right, because we are called to be compassionate. We are called to come to them, and we are called to say, I am not going to waver, and this is the tension. There is an exclusivity to being a Christian. There is a new kingdom. It is a thing, and it is not the world's thing. Right? That's why there's the flesh, and there's the spirit. There is exclusivity, and it will upset many people. That's what most of the text in Matthew 10 is about, is about what to do when people get upset. And it is near. There is an immediacy. And if you've ever done this, when you present a conflict to somebody, what makes that conflict worth? worse? When you're like, I need to know now. So you're already disagreeing, and now you seem impatient. And it's like putting an irritant on that. So when you claim a certain exclusivity, and then you will not waver from an immediacy, you can be sure that you will need a faithful reliance as a herald. You can be sure that you will need to lean on faith, that in that going bout and back, to and from and looping as a disciple, that you will need to come back to your people, you will need to come back to your Bible, you will need to come back to God, because you will get scorched out there sometimes. But Jesus says that's part of how it works. Megan told me essentially when I was talking about this, she says making disciples means sometimes you'll get beat up. And she was almost kind of like saying it like, mm, you know, and I, and I was thinking, oh, that's, you're right. You're right, and actually Jesus is talking about that. 
He says, if you enter a house, greet it. And if that house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. Well, that's interesting language. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So he says, peace as you go out and let the peace return. Go out and back, but don't waver from the heralding. Don't waver from who you are as an image bearer. And why do we not have to be totally afraid of that? Why should that night strike fear in our hearts? Because we know our God is a good God, a loving God who seeks to reclaim his people. And he's going to do it in whatever way it needs to be done for that person to come back. For certain people, that's just going to mean loving them to death. It's just going to mean like the biggest hugs. It's going to mean just encouragement. It's going to mean building them up. For other people, it's going to mean that God has a way where he is going to have to knock down their walls of themselves. Where he's going to have to take that away. He's going to have to take it down to the studs to remodel. And some of your friends, God will need to take down to the studs and others he will not. But that's not up for you to decide. You are simply the herald. And in the searching and the going and the proclaiming, you are to be wise and discerning. That's why you decide, is the house worthy or not? But you don't let it be personal. Just because somebody doesn't agree to become a Christian doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. That's their decision. Because it's one thing to think that we're heralds at a peacetime, where everybody just kind of likes us or disregards us, not a big deal, but we are heralds at wartime. And so we can expect it. But we need to realize that compassion and justice are what win at the end of the day so that we are on the winning side of the battle. Not so that we can be arrogant or elitist, but so that we can be truthful. Because there are two, there are two sides we easily go to when we think about the kingdom coming and the end times. Either path you're on, if you're not careful that you continue to be with Jesus, they will take you one or the other place. They will take you to elitism, overemphasizing the remnant, overemphasizing how we are the chosen people, overemphasizing how we've got it, not worried about you. I'm going to cloister myself off, right? I'm just going to wait it out until Jesus comes back. Or universalism, which is, ah, Jesus is just so good, I don't know why he wouldn't want everybody in heaven. And one of those two things is going to happen unless we are discerning at peace with who Jesus is, at peace with our following him, putting our peace out to those, seeing if it grabs, seeing if it takes, spending time with them, hanging out in their homes. And if it doesn't grab, bringing it back into you, not abandoning it entirely. You bring your peace back onto you. You shake the dust off your feet. Right? Shake, your, shake your shirt out and you move on. That is a hard thing for us to deal with. For some reason, maybe it's America, maybe it's the West Coast, there's just something really hard about that to grapple with. But Jesus is very clear on it. Lastly, if you're a disciple, are you a healer? Hopefully this will help those where the herald thing, they were like, ah, uh, no. This might be another way to help you understand this. Are you a healer? The disciples go and they're given actually authority 
to cast out unclean spirits, to heal every disease and affliction. And then he says specifically, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without pain, give without pay. So we can see right away that a healer is generous and overflowing. As disciples of Jesus, we are to be people that get so much from the space we spend with Jesus that we can just, it's just coming out over the top. We've talked about this before. That because you got what you got for free, you can freely give. The herald is less concerned with his proclamation about what it means to him because he knows that he has the protection of the kingdom. He knows the forces that are behind him. He knows the truth of the word. He can see from the, up on the hill the forces on both sides and he says, I'm positive this one's winning. I'm positive. He has faith and it brings peace. James has that verse where he says, your life is but a mist, right? Jesus talks about the taking care of the birds and clothing the flowers, right? We are so concerned and anxious about our survival because we make so little of Jesus' goodness and his promise of the new heavens and the new earth. And that robs us of all of the power to do the things that we must do as a healer. To be a healer is to live for others. It's to go out and take your time with them. It's to go out and change who you have come here to know yourself as in order to be with them sometimes. Paul says, to the Jew I became a Jew. To the Gentile I became a Gentile. Paul says, if it means winning you back, I'll go hang out and learn something new. If it means I get to love you and be with you more, I'll name that thing as less than and I'll spend that time with you. And what's interesting, the irony here, is that there is physical healing, but the physical healing is just sort of like a surface treatment, surface veneer. It's just sort of skin-deep version of the true healing that we are called to heal by. So it is good for us to be doctors, nurses, physical healers. It's good for us to do that. But the true healing that we're coming to bring is a spiritual healing. And that's what Jesus' physical healing always reflected. Every time Jesus went and healed somebody, after that, after that experience, what happens? There's always a call to faith. And there's always an acknowledgement of belief. The, the physical is simply a, just a glimmer of what's happening in the spiritual realm. And that's what Jesus is after. So, I rushed through that healer piece. There's so much more we could go into. But this is what I want you to take away from this whole thing. That to be a disciple is first a process of character building, which is something we'll go into a lot. That it is simply about being who you are, getting to know Jesus, understanding that you're with him, being confident in that. As Ephesians 4.1 says, to live a life worthy of the calling you received. Total life. It's it's everywhere, every part. And yes, it's about going and doing God-ordained spiritual work, but it is not about the product. 
You can let your peace return to you because you have faith that you were a proper herald. You have faith that you were saying what you know to be true because daily, moment to moment, you go back to it. You check yourself. You have humility. And that you can leave the results up to God. There's a common business wisdom that mirrors this well. right? You can only control your own actions. You can't control outcomes. And it's just, it's just wise character. It's just very wise character. So many of us get wrapped up in getting the outcome that we're after, right? That we then, we then either go get totally led astray because we're so after the outcome, we've placed it above God and it's become an idol. Or we go after the outcome and it doesn't turn out even close to how we want it and we're so demoralized we want to give up. And to be a disciple means that you are in love with the process more than the product. That you feel for the lost sheep and you desire for the great shepherd to bring them back, but you realize you are not that great shepherd. And you pray, thy will be done. So, to end with, I just want to say this, get super practical again. These are the habits of presence in our life. And these are the things that we're going to work on together. And I'm going to probably, I think I'll send these out in an email form so we can sort of work through these. Maybe, maybe hang these on your fridge as a great way to disciple this summer. As we walk through these identities and these traits of discipleship, of the student, of the traveler, of the herald, of the healer, those will be on your fridge. But then we'll have these habits, the habits of presence, of making sure that you're in the presence of God before you go out, are prayer, thinking and words directed upward. I'm not conflating those two as the same thing. I'm thinking prayer and thinking and words directed upward. Study and wrestling with Scripture silently and in community. So Sundays and Tuesdays, we're going to do that communally, and then there's independently. Praying from compassion, from the word, for the world. That our prayers not become so internalized and me-focused and I-focused. But that they come from Jesus' and God's will so that the Spirit in you is praying out for the world in compassion. Listening from the Spirit. Listening from the Spirit as it stirs movement within you. Discerning and acting in movement with immediacy. That one's hard. Faithful resilience. Focus. And I want to throw this in here. It's not in the text. Mark 6. Same exact discourse. What does he do? He sends them out two by two. I think for some of us, some of us, there's probably a sinful side that really likes that. It's like, man, I can't do this on my own, so I really need somebody else. But there's, there's another side of us that hopefully that will bring great joy to us in saying, look, it's not about let me sit next to you so I can copy your notes. Right? Because how will I perform in the internship if I just slide it up next to you and copied your notes? But two people who have studied and come together, man, that's glorious. Sends them out two by two. So we'll work these over together. I want to be very, very practical. But I want us to know this beyond and above everything else, that to disciple is to be called and asked and working according to Jesus, out of his heart, out of his compassion, first and foremost, because we see that we were a lost sheep. 
who was reclaimed because the kingdom is near and that we are simply going out to reclaim others. Let's pray. God, you give us tall orders. It can be hard even to voice them, but your word is clear. Your word is so crystal clear on these things. I pray that you would soften our hearts, that you would, that you would take our doubt right now, that you would comfort us, that you would help us to understand and have your peace and rest in you. Press that you would compel us and convict us to be disciples for you. In Jesus' name, amen.